it is such a relief actually to be here because two years ago I felt like I had prepared a feast that just went a bit moldy. <laughs> and uh, who was it asked me this morning? Is my talk this morning uh, new or is it the same one that I prepared two years ago? And it really is, it is built on the bones of that talk, but it is, it is essentially new. But it was a surprise, no one who knows me, that we're going to go to Revelation. So, um, so do please take your Bibles, turn to chapter 1 of Revelation. While you're doing that, just tell you a little bit what, about where we're going to go. I really love the Bible, and I find it incre just increasingly fascinating. And I've taken it upon myself to to try and learn the languages that it was written in. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, whatever nuggets of Greek and Hebrew that I've learned, um, I'm going to share with you this morning, because um, I've got some mind-blowing stuff. Just you wait. And um, my project this morning is quite an audacious one. I'm going to try and preach the whole of Revelation to you. And um, I'm just, you know, I know we've only got four hours, but we can do it. You know, we can do it. So, I'm a bit of a nerd for Revelation. And the reason I've selected uh, to speak about Revelation is it's a mysterious book, and it's, it's one that I've spent a lot of time with. It's one that I love. It's my Desert Island uh, scripture. <laughs> my Patmos Island, I should say, scripture. Um, why do I want to speak to it? Because I, I want to try and do for you what I find Revelation does for me, and that's to comfort and encourage you. And I know you probably don't think of Revelation as a book of comfort and encouragement, but I want to help you to find the comfort and encouragement that is in that scripture this morning. Because I think we need to be comforted and encouraged. Whatever kind of ministry you're involved with, I wonder if you would be brave enough to raise a hand if at any point over the last two years you felt like just giving it up. At any point. And that's okay. So in my now sort of decades of leading worship, I have found the last two years the only time where I've actually found it more of a burden than a joy. And I've really fallen out of love with, with it. So I just wanted to say that if that's how you felt or if you feel that now, that's okay. Because we were never actually supposed to fall in love with worship. So today, I just want to encourage you to hold on and to never, never give up. And I'm not talking about ministry, I'm talking about Jesus. I want you to, and I'm preaching to myself here, to turn your gaze away from the racetrack and look towards the prize. And keep pursuing him, keep waiting for him, keep clinging to him. And actually, that's what Revelation is all about. It's about turning our eyes towards 
Jesus, to look full on his wonderful face. The first time I ever read Revelation, you know, people remember where they were on 9-11 or, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated or, you know, there was some stuff that happened in between those two events as well. But, you know, but I, um, I remember where I was on uh, June the 26th, 1995, when I read Revelation for the first time. And I didn't have a flipping clue what it was all about. In the last five or six years, I've been a bit obsessed with it. And frankly, you should be really suspicious of anyone who's obsessed with Revelation. <laughs> Let me put you at ease with a really clear and trustworthy principle with which to discern those who are speaking truth from Revelation and those other people. This, that principle is this, that there is very little, if anything at all, that is in Revelation that is not also in the rest of the New Testament. So if you read the rest of the New Testament, and you hear an argument made on the basis of something in Revelation, and it doesn't, doesn't ring true with what else is in the New Testament, the chances are a little higher that you're being a little bit misled. It is unique in style. It's obviously a complete outlier in terms of its writing style in the New Testament. But theologically, it walks right down the middle of Main Street New Testament. And because of that principle, there are a few things that we can say about some of the garbage that has been associated with this book. For example, steer well clear of people who claim that certain images can be used to exclusively identify people and events in history. For example, the Whore of Babylon. A very influential pastor, who shall remain nameless, fairly recently declared that Oprah Winfrey was the forerunner of the harlot movement. I think he's wrong. You'll get people saying that the mark of the beast is the chip in your credit card or the barcodes or the rec more recently the COVID vaccines. I think they're wrong. <laughs> Here's another big one. I don't know if you know this, but we're, we're in the end times. And we have been for 2,000 years. <laughs> and so people who use the numbers and the, the events in Revelation to try and map it onto our history and declare that they know the day and the hour that Jesus will return, believe them not. There's a couple of reasons I have to say this. The first is that Jesus himself doesn't know. So for us to claim knowledge that Jesus doesn't have is a bit, you know, up ourselves. The, 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 the second reason is that Jesus specifically told us not to try and work it out. 
and to tell and to and for anybody who did try and work it out um, to call them a liar. So, if that's you doing that, stop it. So this is the really trustworthy principle by which you can read and understand Revelation, that it is dead center of New Testament theology. Now having laid that foundation, how am I going to preach the whole of Revelation? I want to ask four fundamental questions of the text. Who, why, what, and how? From whom did this revelation come? And to whom was it intended? That's kind of two parts of question one. The second question is why? Why was this revelation given? The third and fourth questions are, what are we supposed to do about it? And how are we supposed to do whatever that is? It may surprise you to know that I think Revelation is actually a very practical book. And so I want you to look at the uh, first three chapters of Revelation in the Bible. Just kind of have them open, or if, the, if you're um, on an electronic device, then um, I'm sure the bookstore has some paper copies that you can purchase. Um, but I, I think that whatever else happens in this, in this Revelation, whether it's the heavenly worship services where, you know, night and day, day and night incense arises, um, or the cosmic wars or the cities coming out of the sky. I think all of that is intended to communicate background to the who, why, what, and how of the whole revelation, which I believe is actually contained in these first chapters. So without further ado, let's look at the text. If you have Bibles, let's just go straight to uh, chapter 1, because here we have the who. It's answered in the first few words. This is the apocalypse, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, by the way, Greek nugget number one, Revelation is a translated English word from the word apocalypse. So, when you hear the word apocalypse used to describe, you know, cataclysmic wars or, you know, bad weather, tell them to stop it, you know. Jesus is, uh, sorry, John is just minding his own business on this Greek island called Patmos, and he is caught up in a mind-blowing vision of Jesus himself. He appears walking among seven lampstands, holding seven stars in his right hand, his eyes like fire and feet like bronze, that is glowing as though it just came out of a furnace. His face is shining like the sun, and a sword is coming from out of his mouth. And when he speaks... He says that he is the first and the last, the living one who was dead but is now alive forevermore. He says he is the Alpha and the Omega. Greek nugget number two, Alpha and Omega mean Alpha and Omega. So, let's do some translation work on the fly there. And he says... Uh, that these seven lampstands represent seven churches whom John is to write to. Now, every single aspect of that vision of Jesus, all the things that he's holding, all the things that he's wearing, all of the details of his appearance, 
are resonating with deep treasures inside what we call the Old Testament. Like, this is why I love Revelation. It's like sort of going down little rabbit trails. You know, you sort of, oh, that's from Ezekiel, that's from Daniel, that's from Isaiah, that's from Jeremiah, that's from the Psalms. It's just so much fun. But here is Jesus in Revelation revealed as the Messiah who was crucified and yet rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And although Jesus never says the words, I am God, there is just no doubt that this text screams Jesus is God himself. The description of his appearance is that of the Ancient of Days, his hair white like wool. And then Jesus himself speaks. So that's, that's the who of Revelation. This is from Jesus. But to whom is this revelation directed? Well, he names seven churches, seven locations to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And in all of these addresses to all of these different churches, he identifies himself using one of the features that John has seen in his appearance. So it's the one who uh, has feet like burnished bronze says this to Thyatira. So we can ask to whom this was written, and Revelation seems to answer the question, because we're, we're given the names of these churches, but a finer and closer and more detailed reading delivers some really interesting factoids. That because there are seven addresses, and because there were certainly more than seven churches, and Jesus certainly had something to say to you know, all the churches that were missed out of this letter, the number seven in apocalyptic literature means something, and we just need to look at Genesis to know what it means. It means God's fullness, God's completion, his, um, his entire entirety, the consummation of his creation. And so when John speaks to seven churches, he might be speaking specific things to these specific churches, but he's speaking to all churches everywhere and every when. So actually, the to whom includes us. And there's, a, there's another clue for this, and it's not just the seven. It's that at, each end, at the end of each address, he says, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so you're supposed to listen in on what, God, on what Jesus is saying to the other churches. If, if, you're, if you're down the road in Smyrna, you're not supposed to like chuckle at Laodicea and go, oh, we're so much better than them. You're supposed to look at Laodicea and think, do you know what? There's some of that in us too. We need to be careful. And you're supposed to overhear what's going on in other churches and, 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 and confront those things yourself. So that's from whom and to whom. What about why? Why is Jesus making this revelation? That is answered in the detail of his assessment of each church. So as Jesus turns his eyes to these Christian communities, he sees much that he likes and much that he dislikes. And he wants his followers to know what he approves of and what he disapproves of. 
It's very practical. Like I said, among the things that he approves of are these, works of mercy and love, diligent testing and the weighing of truth in preaching and teaching, a refusal to count worldly riches and public reputation as any source of security, and a patient and enduring fidelity to Jesus, even in the midst of extreme pressure to abandon the faith. It's very clear, it's very practical. And among the things he disapproves of are just simply the reverse of those things, an absence of merciful and loving works, tolerance of false and deceitful teachers and teaching, a pursuit of and a reliance upon financial security and good reputation, and a, and, and a failure to maintain fidelity to Jesus, instead giving in to the pressures to compromise. And like Bernie said yesterday, we're called to holiness because God is holy. So I would describe in, this, in these uh, praises and warnings to these churches, there's a fundamental good and a fundamental bad. The fundamental good is that these people have decided at some point to follow Jesus. The fundamental bad is that this choice is under attack. And just as in the life of Jesus, who chose obedience to God and he got crucified as a result, now the lives of his followers are facing the same story. Maybe not a cross, but challenges nonetheless. So that's why Jesus is making this revelation. He sees what's going on. He sees the good that they are doing. And he also sees how hard and how painful it is because he's done it. He's been there. The entire revelation in its later detail shows that it's not just Jesus, it's not just that Jesus has asked a hard thing of us, it's that there is an active campaign of sabotage taking place behind the scene. And Jesus sees this and he says, he comes to say that he sees it and he says, keep going, it's worth it. And we know that we can trust him when he says this because of who he is and what he's already achieved. He's the one who was dead, but who is now alive. So the who is Jesus and to whom is us? The why is because he sees what we're going through and he knows that we're under real pressure and he wants to encourage us to keep going. So what? What are we supposed to do about this? And if you take nothing, nothing else away from this talk, I want you to take this. He wants us to overcome. It's a word that's repeated in each one of the seven addresses. It's translated various different ways in our Bibles. You might have to the one who is victorious, to the one who conquers, but I think the best word for it is overcome, to the one who overcomes. That's actually how it's translated in the rest of the New Testament when it's used. And I think overcoming speaks more to the 
journey that we have to go on in order to be victorious, to be conquerors. First, we have stuff we've got to overcome. I think this is the key to understanding the message of Revelation. And wrapped up in the messages to overcome are reasons why we should overcome. He gives us motivation. So in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Whoever overcomes may eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise. Verse 11 Whoever overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I'm not going to go into what that second death is. This seminar later this year, maybe. <laughs> Verse 17, to whoever overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the person who receives it. What's this white stone all about? There's all sorts of different interpretations. The one I think that rings most true is that gladiators who were victorious at the end of combat would be given a white stone. And that white stone was essentially their ticket to the celebration banquet at the end of that night. And so they would take this stone and they would redeem it for entrance into a great celebration of their having overcome. Uh, verses 26 and 28, 28. To whoever overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will also give them the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5, whoever overcomes will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And verse 12, whoever overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Oh. Jeff. <laughs> Maybe not. And verse 21 to Laodicea. Whoever overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So actually, we've got a really practical hint here. Uh-oh. We have to overcome just as he overcame. That sounds a bit ouchy. But in each of these messages, he's giving us a glimpse of the beautiful picture that comes later on in the later chapters of Revelation where he's describing the new creation and he wants us to hold on to that promise and just give us a little teaser for how glorious, how beautiful and how worth it it will be if we just overcome. And overcoming clearly doesn't mean getting 
airlifted out of trouble. It means going through trouble and making it out the other side. There are promises of Jesus that we love to remember, that, you know, we, we love to look up those encouraging verses, don't we? My old pastor called um, the promises of Jesus that we love to forget guppodge. Guppodge stands for the great unremembered promises of Jesus. <laughs> One of those guppodges is this. In this world, you will suffer. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So actually, Jesus has already overcome. He invites us to overcome as he overcame. And so we can look to Jesus and see that this thing can be done. He's done it. That's great, Jesus, but how? So I've given you the who, the what, the why. How? The major clues to how we overcome are, I think, in the final address to the church to Laodicea. That it has gone so badly astray that Jesus says they are at genuine risk of his rejection. They need to know with great urgency what is required for them to get back on the right track. To the Laodiceans, Jesus says this, whoever overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And there's this really well-known verse in the address to Laodicea. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. And Kate came and shared that word yesterday. Jesus is standing at the door of the church where inside are people who claim to know him, to love him, to worship him, to follow him, and yet the sound is, and that sound is Jesus on the outside. Can I come in, please? And this verse is so often used to invite a non-Christian to welcome Jesus Christ into their lives. Can you see how misguided that is? This is Jesus wanting to get back into the lives of those who already claim to be Christian. Can I come back in? He wants back in. Why does Jesus want to come back in? Is it so that he can give them a good telling off? Give them really good conference? Banging worship? And challenging teaching? Jesus tells us why he wants to come back in. He says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. And so this is an invitation to reconciliation, to fellowship and to friendship with Jesus. And this, I think, is the key to overcoming. Reconciliation fellowship, friendship with God. 
if I make it to the end of this race, it is not because I am an example of an elite athlete. It's because if I make it, it's because I yoke myself to the one who's already overcome. Jesus, I believe, overcame due to the unassailable fellowship that he had with his father. And I believe that the only way we will ever overcome is if we have an unassailable fellowship with Jesus. We're all familiar with the language of a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. But actually, did you know that God has a relationship with everybody? It's just not always a good one. <laughs> he had a relationship with Jezebel. That didn't go well for her. What he wants isn't relationship, he's already got that. What he wants is friendship. So what do we need to do to cultivate friendship with God? First of all, obviously, we answer the door. <laughs> we notice that we allowed Jesus to slip out while we were doing his work. And speaking from personal experience here, I, I lost fellowship with God even while I was ministering. And it's, I guarantee, the best way to burn out. <laughs> so we need to invite him in, but it doesn't end there. Friendship isn't a formal relationship, but it isn't a formless relationship either. It needs its structures, its disciplines, its habits. It isn't formal, but neither is it formless. The casual mind kills it. That's not my words, by the way. It's a pastor called George Buttrick. The vineyard has often been called a charismatic evangelical movement. Charismatic because we value a living experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and evangelical because we value the scriptures as God's revelation and the plumb line of our beliefs. But we also have a heritage as a contemplative movement, which we have all but forgotten. And it's in the wisdom of contemplative traditions that we find the necessary behaviors, obligations, and disciplines that are necessary to cultivate friendship. My pastor, Jim, recently preached this brilliant truth. As a Christian, you have one job, and that job is not to be like Jesus. It is to be with Jesus. Bernie challenged us rightfully so yesterday, to pursue holiness once again. Let me tell you how you pursue holiness. Holiness has a name. Its name is Jesus. We pursue Jesus, 
and he will make us holy. Your job is not to be like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that really liberating. If you look around, hunt around the scriptures, I don't know, does it, does it say anywhere that we're supposed to be like Jesus? Or try to be like Jesus? I mean, I can try. I don't know. I have tried. I didn't do very well at it. <laughs> so I think I'll go for the other option and just hang out with him and see if some of what he is rubs off on me. It's got to happen from the inside out, not from the outside in. Jesus said, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, uh, when he says that, he's talking about being so inseparable from us that it becomes difficult to tell who is who. Eugene Peterson paraphrases abide in me as make your home in me, says Jesus. And he said, and Jesus said, when he goes, when he ascends, the spirit will come and he will make his home in us. I think God wants to overwhelm us with this gift, which is himself. If we feed ourselves with Jesus Christ, we shall be like a vessel in full sail with a fair wind. Those aren't my words either. The good, the good words aren't mine. That's really it. That's all I've got this morning. And we're going to take communion shortly. And so we're going to feed on him. Literally. And if we feed ourselves with Jesus Christ, we shall be like a vessel in full sail with a fair wind. <laughs>